Well, good afternoon, sir. Well, good afternoon, Kyle. Thank you for letting me uh, crash a busy afternoon at the office. Oh, I appreciate it. So you were sworn in as the 19th director of the National Park Service almost a year ago in December. What has your first year in that position been like? You know, I was so honored to be the president's nominee and and be confirmed by the United States Senate. On December 16th, um, the secretary and I, she'd asked me just a, a week before that where I'd like to be sworn in and preferably somewhere outside. And I chose the Lincoln Memorial for a couple different reasons. One, uh, over the 30 plus years since the first time I visited the Lincoln Memorial in 1989, I was always moved by the inscription inside that temple. One was the second inaugural address and the other was the Gettysburg Address. And recognizing that our nation, if it was to divide itself, we would do it ourselves, wouldn't be some outside power. Um, And that I look to those words to ensure that I'm doing my most as an American citizen to figure out how do we continue to move our union forward? How do we create a more perfect union? And so she uh, agreed to it and we went up to the second landing and we looked out that early morning on December 16th into the National Mall and she says, on behalf of the president, myself and the American people, we're entrusting you with our parks, our national memorials um, and our monuments. And that moment really resonated uh, for me because as a young sailor back in 1989, I traveled from Maine to Florida with four other buddies who were in the Navy. And we visited as many of the national parks and memorials and monuments on the way. And as a young 18 year old turning 19 that summer, it really laid the foundation of a better understanding of who we are as American people, understanding uh, the folks who first came here from Europe Um, and landed on the shores of the East Coast to the native uh, relatives that I have from Maine to Florida and their interaction of living on this landscape for 10,000 plus years and then what has happened over the last 500 years here in North America. Uh, It gave me a sense of pride and concern because we have both positive stories and some very negative stories. Uh, I got to, you know, see places where the civil rights were firsthand and African-Americans were fighting for their rights. I got to see uh, embarkation stations for the first World War, you know, like Fort Dix and watching, knowing that Americans were going into the first major conflict. But that was a real good grounding. And so I sat there and contemplated that I'd been charged uh, by the Senate, by the president, by the secretary, to protect and preserve these places. And just as I was getting ready to take my oath, she had me look at my feet and I was standing on the very spot that Dr. Martin Luther King had gave as I have a dream speech. And she said, we are now the embodiment of part of Dr. King's dream. And recognizing once again, that we are a strong nation because of our diversity, just like diversity is natural in the the world all over. Uh, in the natural world, it must also be natural among us human beings. And therefore, I took great pride in knowing as I took my oath again, as I had done as a young sailor 30 some odd years before, uh, to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that my job was to protect and preserve these places, not just for myself, but also for my children, my grandchildren, and seven generations to come. And so as I look back in the first 10 months on here, I've visited over 50 some odd national parks to date. And I can tell you without a doubt that the people who protect and preserve these places, I don't care if they're frontline interpreters or the back end people who are doing all of the finances, they are dedicated civil servants who really do take their oath very seriously in the protection, preservation and enhancement of these open spaces that we love as Americans across 85 million acres. What an incredible moment standing at that spot and an incredible story. And I'm sure it was even more powerful because you are not only the director of the National Park Service, but you are the first tribal citizen to ever be nominated to that position. How do you feel about that in particular? You know, I'll be honest with you, when I got the call asking if I would consider becoming the 19th director, uh, I was in shock. It wasn't a job that I was looking for. Um, It just happened to be the job that was offered to me by the administration. I did put my name in for consideration because I'd seen over the past several years some of the troubles that we've had as a union that we were starting to pull ourselves apart. And I wanted to be part of a government that was going to really go back to the fundamentals of creating that more perfect union. 
And so I, I accepted the position um, and recognizing that I come from the Confederated Tribes Umatilla Indian Reservation in what is now Northeast Oregon. Um, my Cayuse heritage, my Walla Walla heritage on my father's side, uh, my uh, Yankton Sioux on my paternal grandmother's side, and my mother's Kokopa uh, side from Southwest Arizona all believe in a strong stewardship ethic. Uh, each of their creation stories from those tribes tell us that we must be good stewards of the land, not only for ourselves, but for our seven generations out. And National Park Service does that type of work. And I couldn't be happier to be take this position on. Before we get uh, too far into this, uh, what is some of the history of the National Park Service? You know, the National Park Service, uh, we in the United States created the idea of national parks. And not that it, in around the world there weren't these thoughts, but some of our early conservationists, uh, like Walton and Thoreau, had talked about setting aside lands that we would preserve in posterity for the American public to enjoy outdoors. What's also interesting about that is they also talked about leaving the Indians on the land in their early writings so that they would be able to continue to um, be the caretakers and stewards of those lands. Somehow that got changed by the modern times of conservation, uh, by the times of Muir and President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in which they felt that, that you needed to remove the Indians off the landscape. And we see that happen by the formation of our very first park, which we are celebrating this year. Uh, 150 years ago in March, we uh, set up the first national park in 1877 at um, Yellowstone. And um, that park was set aside for its beauty. But then there was a systemic, systematic way of removing the natives off of that park. There are already 40 tribes that had used the area in and around uh, Yellowstone National Park. But uh, they called the army in pretty quickly to come and be the caretaker of that with the charge of removing Indians off the landscape. And so that became the basis for a lot of how we did our acquisitions uh, with national parks around the country, including Yosemite, where they had removed a number of Indians who had been living within those lands, um, tribes who did not have treaties that had been ratified by the Senate and therefore uh, were displaced into other missions and rancherias. Um, and you know, there were some detrimental effects that we see because of that history in the National Park Service. I will say um, over the last 20 plus years, we've seen um, uh, an awakening, if you will, by the National Park Service and a realization that they also, as a federal steward, have trust responsibilities with the federal government to uphold treaties and obligations that they have with tribes. And there's been a much stronger concerted effort to actually work with tribes and figure out how to better steward based on traditional ecological knowledge that they've held for thousands of years of these landscapes. And how do those meetings and uh, talks go? There's representatives from certain tribes, and do they travel here to D.C., or where does that, I guess, pre-legislation take place? You know, a lot of that happens in the field. It happens, you know, uh, like our, our National Park Service staff do a great job, fantastic job of working in gateway communities. So whether that is um, in, in at Yellowstone or Yosemite or Arches or, or anywhere else, we really do have a good connection with the local community. And, but they haven't always had a connection with the tribes that surrounded that community. By example, I'll use mine. When I was in uh, a grade schooler in the late 1970s, uh, fourth grade, they would take us to the Whitman uh, Massacre site, which is a National Historic Site that's run by the National Park Service. And the interpretation that had been in that place had been that it was purely a massacre, that the Indians unprovokingly attacked the Whitman mission uh, in what was Cayuse country. What they failed to point out was is that the United States didn't own the land, and it was the Cayuse Indians who invited the Whitmans on. And from the tribe's perspective, it wasn't a massacre. It was a reckoning for a disease that had come through and wiped out the tribal members. And Dr. Whitman, as a medical doctor, uh, tried to do his best to try to help cure and take care of that. But too many people died in his hands. Among my people, if you're practicing medicine and that medicine doesn't take, you have a right to uh, a retribution back for the loss of life that you were responsible for taking care of. 
and the tribal members who went there to try to tell him that he failed to do his his bidding, his promises that he made, coupled with the fact that he was leading expeditions in the territory in direct violation of his agreement with the Cayuse, it ended up in a killing of uh, Dr. Whitman and his wife and a holding of over 50 hostages that eventually were released. Um, and so that was that side of the story was never told. But starting in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, the National Park Service actually met with tribal representatives and invited several of them to come and work as seasonal staff to help reinterpret some of the site, to tell both sides of the story, because there were more than one side of the story. And now I'm very proud if you go to that park, it tells both sides, the tribe's version of how they understood their world at the time, and then how the non-Indian understood its role and its world at the time. And while they're two different stories, it doesn't make them any less important. Matter of fact, it just creates a richer fabric. And while it's a sad and tragic event, it's one that we can learn from a, a misunderstanding between cultures and communities. Yeah, very um, sad event and at times a sad uh, history, but you're right, it is so important to complete that picture. So not only do we have full context to form opinions, but most importantly, I believe to learn from, to learn from what we've been through and some of those past mistakes and misunderstandings. Absolutely, because it, it opens up new paths of discussion and understanding and uh, building that stronger union and building a better and brighter future. And I've seen the fruits of that labor. We at the Umatilla Indian Reservation have our own institute, Tumasli Cultural Institute, and we partner with the National Park Service on a regular basis. They've received funding from the National Park Service about their own interpretation. So I see this just as a broadening of America's story and, again, uh, weaving that fabric together in a stronger way. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, consultation by federal agencies in general um, was done what we call drive-by consultation. And I had experienced this season as a tribal administrator um, where the federal government either just sent a letter or made a phone call and told you what they were going to do, wasn't really consulting with you about what they were going to do, and just kind of told you what they're going to do. Um, Starting in 1994, uh, there was an executive order under President Clinton that really started to strengthen consultation and what that would look like. Uh, President Biden, uh, last year in November, uh, during the White House Summit of Tribal Nations, reiterated this whole government approach that we will do consultation better and that we will start looking at co-stewarding, co-managing, uh, and discussions across the entire federal government. Out of that came secretarial order between uh, Secretary Holland and Secretary Vilsack of the Department of Agriculture of Joint Secretary Order 3403, which told all of the bureaus in both agriculture and interior to look at their consultation policies, look at their co-stewardship and co-management, and develop a stronger way of doing so. And most recently, a couple of weeks ago, we've published what is called a director's memorandum, which for me pulled together all the different regulations and policies together and helped interpret that for staff so that they understood what consultation meant, which isn't just a phone call or a letter, which is actually going to the site and rather than making them come to you to the park, you go to the tribal village, you go to the tribal uh, lands and you talk with them about what you're doing in your park, what your general management plan is and seeing what contributions they have. And we currently have a number of projects going on across the country that we're lifting up in that way because through direct consultation, uh, we're also learning how to better be stewards of lands, whether that's sweetgrass uh, propagation in Acadia National Park uh, or whether that's down in the waterways uh, down in Biscayne or Everglades where we're working with the Seminole tribes. There are great opportunities for us to bring that traditional ecological knowledge through consultation and apply it to preservation and protection of the parks. How does the overall structure of the National Park Service break down? Like, what are the main departments or entities that make up the National Park Service? So there's headquarters here, which they call WASO, uh, W-A-S-O, and headquarters has all of the directorates. So you have your natural resources and sciences directorate, you have your cultural resource programming, uh, you have, of course, finance and human resources. Um, you have uh, facilities and, and infrastructure. Uh, all of those directorates are housed, uh, they're headquartered here. Uh, but then we have regional offices uh, throughout the United States. And those regional offices have regional directors that help uh, support the superintendents in the field. 
One of the things that I truly enjoy and admire about the National Park Service is their model is one of a decentralized system. And uh, both of you and I, you come from the Marines, I came from the Navy, it's also a very decentralized system. Decision-making, as you know, is always down at the lowest level of command and you empower your people to be able to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. National Park Service, because of its army model, I think has a lot of those traits in it. Every superintendent is basically the captain of their own ship. And as long as they stay within the parameters of the policies and the laws, they have a lot of leeway on how that park operates and runs. And I see that as a true strength. That way they can call upon the resources of the region or even call upon the resources here at headquarters and we be able to provide those resources out to the field. I wanna make sure that we're not a top-down organization. I see myself in my role as responsible for getting resources so that people can do the jobs that they signed up to do and that so many of them love to do. And I learned that lesson first and foremost from the late Admiral Zalatiper, who was my battle force commander during the first Gulf War, who'd said, you know, if we give you the resources, I know you can do the job. And he uh, led us during the first Gulf War with that in mind. He would, as uh, making sure that we always had the materials, the supplies, uh, the person power, uh, the aircraft, the maintenance, so that we could do the job that we've been trained to do and try to do it as quickly as possible so that we could get home. And um, those lessons learned, I've tried to carry throughout my personal career. Make sure people have the resources necessary. Never be scared to hire people smarter than you because they will always make you look good and they can do a good job. Well, it just seems like such an overwhelming position and responsibility to be at the helm of so many parks, employees, and such a vast amount of land. So what you've said about that decentralized model and a model of never being from the top down, I think is essential because it is such a vast system of, of land and moving parts. If it was top down, there's no way that the people at the top would be able to visit every park often enough to see the everyday issues that might arise or the needs that, as you're saying, don't be afraid to ask for what you need um, to just operate just one part. I mean, most people live on what, a, a half of an acre to an acre of land and still struggle to get their yard done every week. So um, absolutely, I think that's essential for those on the ground every day to have the input and influence that they do on how their land and parks are are run on a daily basis. You know, absolutely. National parks by the numbers. 423 national parks, monuments, and memorials across the United States in all 50 states and U.S. territories. Uh, that's 85 million acres of land that the National Park Service is responsible for overseeing and stewarding. That's over 20,000 National Park Service staff to include seasonal staff. We have over 25,000 concessionaires who provide services within their park system. We have over 300,000 volunteers, that's truly our force multiplier, that provide day-to-day -day services within the park, everything from helping with maintenance to interpretation. And so, you know, with that large number, um, nearly 350,000 some odd just people alone, you can't really just come from the top down. You have to be able to provide the training and expertise and so that people can make decisions out on the ground and, and just provide the sideboards for them. Right. And how does that structure work of over 300,000 volunteers, 20,000 full-time National Park Service employees? How, how does that balance happen? You know, I, it's been incredible to see. Uh, most recently, we were celebrating National Public Lands Day, and I was in the Great Smoky Mountains. And the amount of volunteers, I think we had over 100 volunteers coming out and helping with trail cleanup, uh, with maintenance of, of restrooms. Um, but the staff, uh, who are the experts in this, provide the materials and the training and some of the oversight. Uh, but we're able to use a lot of different skill sets that we couldn't necessarily afford as a government. And I'm not sure we should be when we have those opportunities to work with people who already have a great love of the land and that space and want to give back. And I think that volunteerism 
is one of the greatest assets America has. Uh, it's one of its basic foundings, whether that is from the early days of the revolution with the Minutemen just volunteering to standing up uh, today to Americans volunteering either with the National Park Service or with other federal land agencies to help preserve and protect those landscapes. And also the military. You know, I remind people just from my interactions on the road, speaking with people, I've got asked numerous times, what do you think about voluntary, or not voluntary, mandatory service? And everything has pros and cons. And, you know, there might, uh, and there, there would be some, some pros with that. But what makes our military so wonderful, what makes that service profound is the fact that no one made you, that you felt called to raise your right hand, to go into that recruiting station, and to give up to your life for your country completely on your own. So that is uh, a beautiful thing that there are so many volunteers and um, that's a great point to, outside of full-time employees, to allow people to be part of the mission. Because every every person that's a part of it, that's people that have families that learn about it, their friends learn about it, and those ripples just keep going outward. I love the model. Absolutely. it really shows that the American people own these lands for their common good yes. and that they share in that ownership. Um, and some through, not just through your taxes, but through sweat equity. Uh, they're putting their own labors into it. And it's it's amazing to see. But yes, I remember that I was 17 when I raised my hand to, to join the military and join at 17 and recognizing that we were all volunteers. We came here of our own volition for all kinds of reasons. But the bottom line is that we volunteered for this. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 85 million acres, which is hard to comprehend. What are the biggest challenges with maintaining that much land and that many facilities? You know, it's mostly two things, uh, infrastructure and deferred maintenance. Uh, Because of that infrastructure we have in place that we've put off maintenance for so long, Um, And second is ensuring that we actually have a number of boots on the ground to help implementation and uh, ensure the sustainability of that infrastructure. The National Park Service, you know, has, uh, by example, we have 5,000 bridges, everything from car bridges to pedestrian bridges over the 85 million acres of land. We have thousands and thousands of miles of roadway that we are responsible for. Uh, The George Washington Parkway, which is just a few miles from where we're sitting right now here at the main interior building, is the National Park Services Parkway. And we're doing one of the largest uh, restoration and uh, rehabilitation of that parkway that's been done in two generations. We've invested $150 million with the U.S. Highway Authority to help us, uh, you know, get the road back up to, to, to par so that we have 70,000 plus commuters that use it every day. So it's important that we're building that infrastructure. That is the challenge. You know, when, when I was looking at this position, uh, coming into it at the time, there was a, a rough estimate that our deferred maintenance was uh, at about $12 billion. Uh, but they weren't using uh, what I would consider industry standards of what that deferred maintenance meant. They were only capturing the cost of uh, the infrastructure and its current day cost. They weren't capturing in what it does to do the planning for it, the permitting, and then the actual putting people to work on the ground on that. So uh, very early on in this administration, uh, we started applying that Uh, using very similar to what the Department of Defense uses and other federal agencies to capture what that true cost of deferred maintenance was, and it's nearly doubled to $22 billion. The Great American Outdoors Act has provided a significant amount of funds for us to, to tackle that, but it won't necessarily cover everything. But what it is doing, it is allowing us to get to some of that really critical deferred maintenance. So we are doing everything from water treatment plants uh, and sewer systems to visitor centers, uh, ensuring that that money is getting out there, out on the ground, so that when the American public and our foreign visitors come into the park, that they're experience, they're having a good experience in a park, not a park that's been run down. Um, And it's been said as early as 1978 in the congressional testimony, people were starting to love their parks to get to death 40 plus years ago. And we've seen that over the last 40 years. And so the uh, Great American Outdoors Act funding, the bipartisan infrastructure law funding, and the Inflation Reduction Act funding are all critical for us to get to that backlog of maintenance. The 
Inflation Reduction Act money uh, that came through was about a half a billion dollars, $500 million for us to plus up and start bringing on staff. So uh, I'm very appreciative of Congress recognizing and hearing that call that we need more boots on the ground so that we can sustain these uh, projects that we're putting in and getting done. But it is a massive effort. Uh, everything, as I said, from buildings here in Washington, D.C., downtown to backcountry trails and bridges that need to raise up to their standards for safety concerns. Mm -hmm. And you already mentioned monuments, but I just want to reiterate for those who do not know, national monuments, if you come to D.C. and you walk the streets and you see the Vietnam Wall, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, all of these, if you need help or if you have a question, you will see a National Park Service ranger close by. And so that falls under your umbrella. Absolutely. You know, we have some of the best interpretation and cultural resource staff uh, the world over. Uh, I'm always impressed with our interpretation and cultural resource staff, their knowledge, their understanding. Many of them have advanced degrees. Uh, and so they know what they're talking about and they love to share their knowledge with the general public as they come to visit it. But I'm also just, like I said, impressed with the, the staff. I'll tell a story. Back in 1989, we were traveling, as I said, that road trip from Maine to Florida, and we got in late because we'd been visiting Gettysburg to Antietam Battlefield and the National um, uh, Cemetery there. And so it was late in the afternoon. It was early fall, and we go running through the wrought iron gates, and there was a guy there going, you know, we, we closed pretty close to sunset. And uh, we said, you know, we're from Virginia Beach. We're stationed in Virginia Beach. We're just wanting to understand the battle. And this gentleman took us out and explained how this became the cemetery and then took us to overlook the battlefield. It wasn't until years later that I found out that he wasn't part of interpretation staff. He was part of the maintenance staff. But you would have never known it. He wow. knew his park so well, and he knew the details of the battle so well, and he took pride in the fact that he had visitors and was going to share with the knowledge that he held about the park. And I see that every day in every park that I've been to, the past 50-plus parks over the last 10 months of that type of dedication by staff. Well, I haven't been to 50, hopefully one day, but I will say uh, I couldn't agree more. Everyone that I've been to, every park ranger I've talked to, you're exactly right, extremely knowledgeable, and there's a sense of excitement to answer the simplest of your questions or, as you're saying, to walk you through the complex battles or history of that land. Absolutely. Two, I'm assuming, uh, issues when it comes to managing 85 million acres and so many national parks uh, is climate change, and wildfires. Uh, when it comes to climate change, are you and the National Park Service being relied on for data and how the land is being impacted and the wildlife? Absolutely. Since um, we're one of the older federal agent land agencies, land protection agencies, we have a lot of data points. And uh, because our staff have lived in their parks, understand their parks, and have seen some of the changes that have happened over the last 100 years, uh, we have that data points that we can show uh, what it looked like, what it used to be, what was the flora and fauna, and some of the degradation that we're seeing that has resulted from climate change. And we have some of the best scientists on staff, both um, you know, hardline scientists and social scientists, who can bring that data together so that we understand better how to manage it. And we want to share that information with our sister agencies and share their information back. We're trying to look at it as a true um, ecosystem functions, you know, so that it's not seen as a one-off. And we can only do that by talking to lands that abut ours, whether that is Forest Service land, BLM land, or state lands, or county lands, and see if we can bring that all together to ensure ecosystem function where we can. Climate change is going to cause us to do two things. One, adapt. We're going to have to adapt to it because it's not going to go away anytime soon. So what does that adaptation look like in the park? What do we got to do differently than we've done for the last hundred years in managing these places? And two, we must manage towards resiliency. How can we ensure that the things that we are doing will be resilient and sustainable so that they, uh, the impacts will be seen for future generations based on the management decisions that we do now and today? And so climate change is probably the single largest uh, external factor that's putting a lot of pressure on our National Park Service. 
We're seeing that from the most recent floods that we had at Yellowstone. We've seen that from the fires, as you talked about, said there's fires out at Yosemite. And we're seeing that from the hurricanes, just Ian, that just went through recently and how that's changing uh, ecosystem function and what can we do to help and restore that uh, and give the environment half the chance to be able to recover itself. And what are specifically just some of the things as far as ecologically and physical landscape just to kind of give people a mental image of how the climate change is uh, impacting uh, these parks. So like, uh, by example, it, we'll use Yellowstone because of the massive flooding that we've seen. You know, it was a 500 year event that we saw at Yellowstone. Uh, snow is not uh, falling nearly to the levels uh, that it has been falling. It's falling also later in the year and it's a much more wet snow and you get rain on top of that and it just runs down the hillside and fills into the rivers and then starts eating away at the riverbanks, over flooding and washing out lands that, uh, you know, had traditionally wouldn't see that. And you're causing then um, destructions of meadows and fields that the wildlife have been relying upon for their food sources. And so how do we deal with that? How do we manage for that? How do we, how do we uh, anticipate that for that resiliency is one of the issues. Um, we're seeing the effects of climate change in the amount of conflagrations of fires that we are having wildfires, but we're trying to plan ahead for that and think about ways of doing that. We've done a number of prescribed burns like at Yosemite or in that Crater Lake, uh, Oregon, uh, Crater Lake National Park, to try to combat that so that when we do see forest fires, it doesn't just run through the undercarriage. We're trying to clean those out um, and ensure. What people forget is that um, what is now present day North America, 2 billion acres of land, has been managed by tribes since time immemorial for at least for 10,000 years. Tribes manage the land very carefully. And while they weren't set up in modern day structures like we have now with Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, um, and other uh, federal agencies, tribes did communicate amongst each other on how to manage those landscapes. By example, uh, you know, Buffalo roamed from what is present day northern Texas and New Mexico all the way into northern Montana. Tribes worked cooperatively to understand what that migration of buffalo looked like, how to protect those uh, waterways to ensure that there was water for those animals, uh, how to ensure grasslands and meadows were in place so they would burn them at certain times of the year to make certain plants come back to help with the growth and the feeding and the birthing of their calf so that they could hunt them so that they could not only be uh, sustain their lives but thrive on the landscape. We can use those lessons and figuring out how we're gonna do preservation and protection through the, the adaptation and resiliency around climate change. And um, we're talking with tribes and their fire crews on how to do that. We're talking with tribes about sweet grass at Acadia and how they're propagating it, how that they don't take all of it off the landscape. They make sure to leave enough for repropagation, that they don't just pull at the roots, that they actually cut them out in a certain way to ensure that there's enough left behind for the shoots to regrow and recover itself. Um, so much of, uh, of what we've done in the past really was about just removing things. We've got to learn how to sustain them in place so that they can recover themselves. That is fascinating that, well, one, that tribes inhabited what is now North America up to 10,000 years ago. But the fact that there was so few people compared to what there is now, and they not only recognized that the land was worth protecting, but that it was a conscious effort to physically do things to the land or with the buffalo as far as tracking the herds and that information, sharing it with other tribes. So I, I just feel like today, you know, if they were doing it back then so long ago when, if anything, they probably didn't have to because of how small the populations were and the vast amount of land and resources. Um, they probably didn't even make a dent in things, but they still were proactive in taking care of what was theirs. So I just hope anyone listening, uh, it's a wake-up call because we should be doing that now more than ever if they were doing it thousands of years ago. Absolutely. And I think that's what's exciting about bringing traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous knowledge to the table finally is that you know all science is based on observation. So if you've lived in one place for 10,000 years, you've passed down those observations from generation to generation. 
and to be able to actually now share that information in a safe place with federal agencies who are the land managers to share that with state and county agencies to help them better manage that is all about sustainability because it is not just for me as an American Indian, it is for the American public. It's for all of us so that we can have these places in perpetuity because if we don't manage them correctly, they will go away, they will be destroyed. And you mentioned American Indian. Is there a correct preference when it comes to Native American or American Indian? You know, it's just, <laughs> you can do a, a master's thesis on this. Uh, up until 1990, uh, the term, even U.S. Census, was American Indian. And for some reason, it got changed to Native American. There was no campaign by the American Indians to change it to Native Americans. And so I think it's just, uh, it can be a preference depending on the native person you're talking to. I've always done American Indian only because American Indian is a political identity. It's not a racial identity. And so my political identity is as an American Indian. How do I know this? Because I'm specifically written into the Constitution of the United States. Um, and that separates me not based on race, but based on political identity. Mm -hmm. um, and who I am though is I'm Walla Walla, which means I'm a Walulapum. I'm a person from the small river in what is now uh, Southeast Washington, I'm a Walipu, Cayuse, I'm people of the ryegrass. That's a locale, so I know that's a location. But my ethnicity, I guess, is Native American. I mean, my people have been here for at least 10,000 years, or as mm -hmm. I've been told since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And I had asked about wildfires, uh, and I'm wondering what measures can be taken to, as these fires occur, to protect national park lands from their spreading. And I ask because wildfires, unfortunately, seem to be becoming more prevalent. And last year, I went to Sequoia National Forest out in California. And one of the many things that struck me was how so many of the trees that make up Sequoia National Forest are not just hundreds of feet tall, but that they have also been there for hundreds, and some, as unbelievable as it is, some of them have been there for thousands of years, and they're still standing strong. And I did notice that it almost looked like some type of aluminum foil around the bottom of them, but it just seems like such an impossible task. And thankfully, we have heroic National Park Service members, firefighters, uh, that's, that specialize in fighting wildfires. And I uh, regret to say, as I came, walked down the hall this morning, about a quarter of the hall out here is remembrance plaques to what looks like hundreds of National Park Service members that have given their life in the line of duty. And I regret to say I, I had no idea it was that many um, but to combat these wildfires uh, and disasters of, of that magnitude, what are the measures that can be taken? So, you know, uh, very early on, over 80 plus years ago, and uh, for those that don't know, uh, Kyle has a shirt with Smokey the Bear on it, who, you know, is with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and our sister agency at the Forest Service. And their, um, their momentum, you know, in the 1930s, uh, was to, to promote Smokey the Bear to stop forest fires, which was a great campaign overall. You know, the, the stance of the United States uh, and so many of its federal agencies and the state agencies across the West in particular was to stop a fire as soon as it started. So you got a lightning strike, put the fire out. You got a campfire who, uh, who went over it, put it out instantly. Um, what there was a failure to recognize over the 80 years is that tribes have been using fire as a form of management for thousands of years. The reason you have some of those old growth trees in, in places like Oregon, Northern California, Washington State, is because tribes took the time to either uh, let natural fires go ahead and burn themselves out, they managed the fire to keep it in a certain area, or they set fire themselves as they used to do in Yellowstone to, to help clear out the underbrush to allow for new growth and to allow for the healthy sustainment of those large old growth trees. Uh, 
And so we're taking that knowledge finally and applying it over the last few years in how we manage forest lands across multiple agencies. And we've seen some of the good effects. And so what you saw at Yellowstone, yes, we had to put fire protection material around. And we were very, very nervous this year as we watched uh, the fire running through Sequoia uh, and Kings Canyon and all around there. But fortunately, because of the burns, that the prescribed burns that they'd done earlier to clear some of that undergrowth out, it went through without damaging some of the older, bigger trees. And so we're trying to make sure that using that old uh, ecological knowledge that has come from thousands of years of practice and putting it in today's practice and then figuring out how we can better manage that, I think is going to help ensure that those uh, trees are sustainable and that they continue to have long lives. Uh, but we have to be careful about how we're managing fire because it is so much more prevalent now. Our summers are starting earlier. It's getting hotter. Earlier this year, I was fortunate to go to the National Fire Center in Boise, Idaho, to talk interagency, to talk to my counterparts with the Bureau of Land Management, with the Forest Service, um, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, because we all put our resources together. And the American people can take a great pride in the Interagency Fire Center because it truly is an interagency um, joint operation. We share resources, we share staff, and they seem to work almost seamlessly, and we ensure those resources go out to where they need to go. The issue we have now is that there isn't a fire season. I was a wildlands firefighter in 1987, and uh, working with the, through the Oregon Youth Corps with the U.S. Forest Service on the Umatilla and Whitman National Forests. And we knew the season. Uh, you know, late spring, they'd do the recruitment. You'd go to your, your pack test. You would work through the summer. You'd work a couple fires. You'd make some good money. But come by September when school started again, you were done. Fire season's over. That's not what we're seeing. Fire season is year-round. We've seen fires in January. We've seen fires out west in the southwest in December. And so um, we've taken some of our uh, bipartisan infrastructure law funding and we've made and converted a number of firefighters to year-round. We're professionalizing it that it's a year-round service. We're trying to make sure that we're upgrading our aircraft and our materials and our training, um, our smoke jumpers, and so that we can attack the fires where they need to be attacked, but also doing it in a different way that if we can actually use fire to our advantage, we're seeing fire being used and managed to our advantage so that it, it, it helps the flora and fauna recover itself. But again, I, I have to say that I, I see a number of veterans who are, are firefighters now. Um, and if you ever get a chance to go out to the Interagency Firefighter Center in Boise, Idaho, um, you should. They have a memorial walk there that is extremely moving of how many uh, men and women have had, lost their lives in the fighting fire. My own son, who is 21, um, just finished his firefighting season. He's back at school at Oregon State University, but he was a wildlands firefighter for the Oregon Department of Forestry this last two summers in a row. Wow. Well, thank you to him and fascinating to learn that that's a part of your journey as well. And uh, I know where a future podcast guest is uh, coming into play. I got, I got to go talk to one of those guys or girls and talk about the heroics that they do every day. Here in the United States, we have the most national parks out of any country in North America. And we're in the top 10 of countries globally when it comes to the number of national parks we have. I know that one of the focal points of your agenda as director is investing in the future of national parks and creating a 21st century experience for visitors. What does this vision look like? You know, the vision has a couple different things. One, uh, I want to ensure that our park managers have all the resources, technological resources necessary to uh, help with the decision-making on how we manage flow. So whether that's vehicles or people coming into the parks, what does that look like? So many of our parks are at the end of line of all the uh, major telecommunication sites. So many of them are still on T1 lines. T1 lines were put in in the uh, early to mid 1960s uh, to handle data. And so therefore we don't necessarily have um, the capability to do internet in most of our parks. We're working on that by trying to figure out how to work with the telecom community uh, and also looking at satellite and how we can use internet satellite to help park managers be able to use data and information in a way that will control flow so that people can come into a park without it always being overcrowded. 
That's one. So that's how we want to plan for the future. But the other is looking at how we're laying out parks to ensure they're accessible and that they're available and that they're not cost prohibitive to the American public and so that people can enjoy and disconnect. So the other part, while I'm trying to connect the park to the World Wide Web and the greater part, is also trying to also look and ensure that people can come in the park but also be able to disconnect from that mm -hmm. and be able to enjoy their surroundings and not feel overly crowded so that they can commune with nature and the places that they want to be, that they can stand at a monument and not have to hear cell phones going off all around them so that they can pay their respects to to memorials also. So it's trying to find that balance and also bring some civility back uh, into the American public so that people can have these spaces and understand how to share them better. So more leaving the parks themselves, remaining, keeping those the same, but internally in the infrastructure and things that will help the employees be more efficient. And it should help the general public. And so if we can have that data, we can send that data out so people can plan. Uh, you know, we say plan like a ranger. So we want them to plan like a park ranger when they come in. What are the sites they want to see? What's the map they're going to do? What is their layout? And uh, we're not going to get away from people carrying cell phones. I get that. So we might as well figure out how we can make that a better tool for the person coming into the park so that they can enjoy it. What other additional information can we place on there for better use? I've seen some really creative work already done around the country uh, where folks can you know, download a podcast of the park and get a tour uh, using headphones and be able to get a tour if they wanna do that on their own, uh, if there aren't enough rangers around. Um, and so there's just different ways of bringing technology and stuff to the forefront to ensure that people are having a much stronger enjoyment in their parks that's, that's more lasting to them. Mm. And then side note, there is a National Park Service app. So anybody that's curious, go ahead and download that. And uh, yeah, the infrastructure you talked about essentially being updated last in the 60s. And some people might say, what, you know, it's 50, 60 years ago now and we got to get on it. But if you've ever actually been to some of these national parks, the reason they are so beautiful and there is so much land is because they're out there. And some of them, you drive through the front gate and you don't see another building or, you know, help center or a park ranger station for a half an hour drive. Right. So I'm sure that is a struggle to work with the terrain like that. It is. I mean, the Great Smoky Mountains, you know, the, the terrain there is very tricky. It's spotty. And so we are looking at where we can put towers to the connectivity because it also becomes a safety issue. We want to know that if, if somebody gets hurt in the backcountry, that their cell phone could get them the help that they need. Right. Um, you know, we have backcountry rangers that are doing patrol, uh, but they might not always be able to get there. So yeah, we have to look at those safety factors, too, and bring all of that to the forefront and how we can better manage these spaces. Recently, the New River Gorge in West Virginia was added to the National Park Registry. What are the steps and how does an expansion like this happen? You know, expansions can happen a, a, a number of different ways. Um, first and foremost, of course, Congress can have us look at that and do uh, a special research study to help us look at manage and uh, get additional lands and acquire lands because uh, we do not uh, use the right of eminent domain as the National Park Service. Lands have to be donated to us or provided to us where we buy lands at a fair market value uh, in order to, to expand it through our partnerships with uh, the conservation community. And, you know, that's a great example of how that was done to be able to bring that in through the work of Senator Manchin um, and uh, Congress to really bring and expand uh, that park. And, and, you know, we've looked at that um, across the United States where Americans want to expand the footprints of parks. And then of course there is the Antiquities Act, which is by the President of the United States at his discretion, his or her discretion. They can use the Antiquities Act to to um, create a national monument in a park. Uh, and uh, presidents have done that in the past in figuring out how to ensure that the footprint is the right footprint to manage in an appropriate way. Before you became director of the National Park Service, you served as council member for the Pacific Northwest Power and Conservation Council, which is crazy because it's not just the Oregon or Washington State Power and Conservation Council. It's an entire region of the country. What are some of the takeaways and things you learned from that position? So the Northwest Power Conservation 
Conservation Council, Power and Conservation Council, uh, was established because of issues that took place in the 1960s and 70s, which uh, most Americans may not know about in the Pacific Northwest. There was a movement um, to uh, put online more uh, nuclear energy beyond hydroelectrical, um, and there were also the idea of creating more dams uh, in the Columbia River Basin. The problem with that, of course, as you know, uh, we hit a, a heavy recession in the 1970s. Oil and gas prices went up and nuclear became unfavorable because of several accidents like a Three Mile Island. And uh, the problem was is many of these projects uh, that got started and undertaken also lost their funding. And so normally a uh, multi-state uh, com commerce compact is an organic thing. It usually comes from the states asking Congress to set it up. In this particular case, it was Congress that set up the compact. So it forced the states of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana to come together. And each state has two representatives who are on the council whose job it is is to look at power production through hydroelectrical and others, including renewables, and how to make sure that energy production is managed in 20-year time spans with five-year updates. And in return, also, money is set aside from that production to uh, mitigate for uh, salmon and wildlife losses. And so that money then is distributed through the council to the states and to organizations to help with salmon recovery and other wildlife uh, stuff. Um, 27 years ago now, when I was 25 years old, uh, I had a guy, I knew a guy from my hometown who was on that council. And I was doing work in salmon and watershed restoration and was always impressed by the thoughtfulness that the council went through, uh, the struggles that you had to work in with, you know, three other states to figure out how to common ground. Um, and I asked him, how do you how do you get that job? And he says, well, you have to befriend a governor. Um, a few years later, I was working with a young um, state representative out of the Portland area. Uh, who went on to become a state senator, state secretary of state, and became governor, Kate Brown. And one day I got the call asking if I'd like to join the council. And the funny part is, it's the one job I've always wanted. And uh, I, she didn't know it. And I would never have thought of asking her for it and was very honored to be selected to um, and get confirmed by Oregon State Legislature, this Oregon Senate, to participate on the council. And while my tenure there was very short, it is a think tank body that has to really look at the needs because like most Americans, when you walk over to that light switch, like the one that's in my office behind you, you touch that button, you expect it to go on. And when it doesn't, that's when you have a problem. And so our job at the council was to ensure the energy production that was being done by Bonneville Power Administration and sold out to Seattle City and Light, to Portland General Electric, to Pacific Core, to Idaho Power, was there for them to be able to ensure that electricity was passed on into households, which is very, very complicated, as you can imagine, because you also then have to weigh the factor of hydro uh, and its effects on salmon and the salmon decline population. Because prior to contact, you know, 16 million plus salmon came back up the Columbia River alone a year and up the Snake River. And today, you know, we're lucky if we get 600 to 900,000. Um, there are a number of factors that have caused that, but dams can't be ignored that they're one of those major factors. And so how do we mitigate for that? How do we combat that? Because we do need this renewable resource in order to generate electricity, to power lights, to power cars, to power refrigerators. And so um, it's a very complex uh, organization that has a magnificent staff that is pretty apolitical. And while we were political appointees, they just provide the facts and the data, and then it's up to us to figure out how to navigate that with four states come together to ensure that that, that the electricity is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at dams and think, well, we're not really getting rid of the water. We're just letting it pass through a dam, and the turbines are creating or converting uh, the electricity and that power. But as you're saying with the salmon populations, and I'm sure others, they travel many, many miles up those rivers. And when, you know, their way to get back to where they want to lay their eggs is blocked, you know, obviously that, that creates issues. So I just want to go a little more in depth into that just so uh, people realize that, like you said, dams can be detrimental even though they're not technically using 
unrenewable resources. Yeah, the, you know, salmon uh, returned for centuries, thousands of years up the Columbia River Basin. And as you said, they, they literally traveled thousands of miles uh, and they um, spawn in uh, the headwaters, meaning the tributaries, and then those salmon uh, grow up about a year later and then will make their way down the river and then go out into the ocean for anywhere from two to four years, sometimes longer. And then they turn around and swim all the way back up to respawn right where they were from. Right where, right where, they, right where they were originally from. They will return back to their home waters to spawn. And... It always amazed me just to think of how salmon do that, um, you know, year after year to ensure the propagation of their species. When um, the dam started coming in, uh, my grandfather talked to my late grandfather, Charles F. Samson, behind me, a picture of him fishing at Celilo Falls when it was still the falls. Um, talked about when he was little that there was such plentiful salmon still in the 1920s uh, that you could almost still walk on the backs of the salmon crossing a river when they were coming through. Um, and then a tributary to the Columbia is the Umatilla River, where I'm from. That's That river's over 300 miles upriver that the salmon had to go through a number of dams to start their way up. Well, a small check dam had been put down on the Umatilla River uh, when my grandfather was a little boy, and he said that little dam that they were using for irrigation protection and stuff uh, stop the salmon from being able to come up and spawn. And so we had no salmon on the main stem of the Umatilla River for over 70 years. Now fast forward to shortly after I'm born in the 1970s, and my grandfather would take us up to the smaller tributaries, um, Meacham Creek, Esculpa uh, Creek, and we would build these little weirs, little, little dams on the side channels. And I'd ask him why, and he'd say, well, when the salmon return, they have to be able to eddy out as they make their way up. We've always done this to ensure their propagation. It wasn't until I got to high school that I realized there's no salmon here. Why the hell are we doing this? But yet every spring, he would want us to go for a walk and we would do this, build these little weird dams. And so I ended up working on salmon and watershed restoration after I got out of the Navy in the early 90s. And by 1993, 94, 95, we saw the first returns once we figured out the passage problem from that little check dam on the Umatilla. And first words out of his mouth when I told him we're celebrating the first return of the salmon was, I told you they were coming home. Wow. And so understanding that, that, you know, for thinking how that's what he was taught by his grandparents and that by their grandparents and being able that if I had lost that and I hadn't done my responsibility or my father who was doing it with him after the salmon had gone on, um, we could have missed out on not fulfilling our obligation to protect the salmon. I come from a place where we call ourselves Waikanish. Uh, let's see how to say this in English. Uh, keepers of the salmon is how you say it in English. And so as a keeper of the salmon, uh, we're not just the keeper of that species, but we have a covenant that we're supposed to be responsible for all the flora and fauna. But that is one of the keystone species for plateau tribes up in Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington. So interesting. And that is just so incredible that you know, they're not just swimming out into the ocean and coming back a few months later for the next season. To go out for years into open waters, find the mouth of the river that they came from, swim hundreds of miles to the exact same spot where they were born. And to correct that next generation. And then they spawn out and they die. And when they die in those rivers and those tributaries, their nutrients go back into the water system. To oh my propagate other species that live within the water system, freshwater mussels, uh, you know, caddisflies, you know, other plants, and so they're relying upon. It is quite remarkable why that ecosystem function has to be in place in order for these species to propagate and, and live on, and had done so for thousands of years. You've mentioned it, uh, but something that people might not know about you is that you are a Navy veteran. As a veteran myself. It's always great to see other veterans continuing to serve and impact this country and our world in positive ways. What was your job in the Navy and what was that experience like for you? So I, I joined the Navy and uh, I was an intelligence specialist at the very end of the Cold War in the late 1980s. And so I was classically trained intelligence specialist, mostly around the Soviet design 
but shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and while that was happening, I was getting retraining in Middle Eastern affairs. Uh, as an intelligence specialist, I was attached to Attack Squadron 155, which was a medium attack squadron of A6E intruders out of Naval Air Station Woodby Island, Washington. So I ended up being stationed about only four and a half, five hours from my hometown. Um, but I deployed aboard uh, the USS Ranger, which was uh, one of the earlier and first supercarriers, but it was a diesel boat. Um, and the Ranger we deployed uh, for the Persian Gulf uh, in December 8th of 1990. And under the command of uh, Frank Swigert, uh, captain retired now, uh, he led the first airstrikes on behalf of the United States Navy over the beaches uh, into Kuwait and Iraq in 1991. And I served as the mission planner and senior um, targeteer of helping plan out targets in a small targeting cell and figure out where to put bombs on target and to push uh, the Iraqi army out of Kuwait at the time. Um, fortunately, that was only a 43-day conflict. Uh, I ended up losing two friends. Tom Costin and Charles Turner were shot down um, on the very next night, on the very first, within the first 24 hours of the beginning of the war. Um, both were very smart uh, young men. Uh, Charlie Turner had a one-year-old son uh, who's doing fine today, Andrew. Um, but that has an impact, as you know, in combat. You have an impact when you lose your fellow brothers. And I uh, promised myself that I would honor their lives by wanting to continue to serve, continue to do good, that I would only take jobs that would be of service to uh, my fellow man and to flora and fauna in itself. Um, and so their deaths, I think, have played a major part in the decision making of where I've chosen what to do with my life and my career, including coming here. And I'm very proud to uh, work with the U.S. Navy Memorial here in Washington, D.C. and the lone sailor uh, that's there, uh, participated last year in the Blessing of the Fleet ceremony uh, last spring, and just most recently, recently attended their gala um, and invoked their names once again because I want their memories to live on. I tell my children of their bravery when they were shot down, uh, that they continue to press onto their target even after they've been hit. Uh, ultimately, uh, their plane went down and they we recovered their bodies and we were able to bury them here at home. Um, but I don't want their memory to ever go away. That's beautiful. And that's a great lesson for all of those who could be struggling. Because, again, going back to the heart of a volunteer, that's what makes service so profound. But it doesn't lessen the blow of how difficult it is to lose those that we care about, that we love and serve with. But I tell those who are struggling, one, you, know, you can't affect what happened. You can't change the past. You can't take it back. But you are still here. And it's okay to struggle. It's okay to have those difficult moments and days. But you are here and you're alive and you have this wonderful chance. And some feel like it's a second chance or a chance that they maybe not even should have at life after surviving combat. But you are here and you have to live your life to continue to bring glory to and remember those that are not here anymore, to include their families in what you're doing, to make them still feel loved and supported because that's what they would want. And they probably wouldn't change anything even if they could. And so uh, just... You know, you're here, live your life, and, and use it to continue to bring light and education to those that did give that ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I'm pleased uh, the Secretary has me sitting on the Task Force for Outdoor Recreation for Veterans, and um, we are looking at and we'll report back to Congress what we can do better as land managers in partnership with the VA to support veterans, to be able to get outdoors, to be able to use that. And by example, as I think you may know, we have uh, passes for veterans and families, active duty and veterans right now, so that you can get into the National Park Service parks free. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to fill out the information and we'll be distributing those this fall, um, National Park passes to all veterans and their families and Gold Star families included, um, so that they can be able to get out there. For me, uh, National Parks outdoors in general, uh, was truly what I needed when I got out of the service. I spent time with my grandfather fishing on the big river of the Umatilla and spent my times in the Blue Mountains of Northeast Oregon to recenter myself and remember uh, why I served in the first place, but also to deal 
uh, with those memories uh, that you have from serving in combat, recognizing that what you your role was is to kill your fellow man um, and that you may have had to do so. Uh, and also the people that you lost uh, who were your friends and figure out how best to honor uh, yourself and honor their service. Um, you know, I'll tell you a story. I, I, I was pretty upset, of course, losing uh, Tom Costner and Charlie Turner. And after the award ceremony, I got uh, a very junior medal for the war, Navy Achievement Medal. Uh, but it was for combat services of 161 combat missions, uh, planning targets. And I remember holding it, standing on the uh, hangar bay, and a Master Chief came by to see me. And he had, you know, it was a award ceremony, so he had every medal you can imagine. And he'd been in Vietnam, he'd served with the Sea Wolves, and so he'd been a door gunner. So not surprising that he had so many medals. He'd done three tours uh, in Vietnam. And he'd been in the Navy almost 30 years by then. And he says, I can tell that part of you wants to throw that overboard, but you don't wear your medals for yourself. You wear your medals for the people that died on both sides, the enemy you killed and the friends that you lost. Don't disgrace their memory. Perfectly put. You know, I feel that way as a Medal of Honor recipient. It, you know, in the beginning, it never any easier to wear it. But I got to where I realized that, you know, I'm wearing it for those that didn't make it back. I'm wearing it for all the veterans that I encounter with it on because it's it's a recognition for all of us. So uh, that's a great story and a great lesson. And I absolutely have a park pass, but I'm glad you said that for all of the veterans listening. Go out there and get your park pass, get outdoors, clear your head, and just remember what's important in life. Absolutely. Center yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your service to our country as a Navy sailor and your continued service to our national parks and the land that they encompass. Before we finish... I watched an interview with you, and the reporter asked, is it strange to be representing lands that were taken from Native Americans by European settlers? And your response was powerful. You said that it's part of being able to tell the diverse story of America. We have to be able to embrace the good and the controversial of our country to tell that story more fully. If we don't, we're not celebrating the diversity of our country and who we are. It's clear from your answer that you think about things deeply and wholly. With that said, what is a piece of life advice or anything you would like to pass along to those listening? You know, stewardship of these lands is all of our responsibility. The lands that we have as American are a gift to us, to ourselves. And because it's a gift to us that we have that responsibility to steward them, not just for us, but for our children, our grandchildren, and those yet born that we don't even know. And so I ask every American when they look at their public lands, whether it's the National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service, that they recognize that they are equal owner with every American and to honor that by ensuring that you leave it better than you found it. Sir, it's been a privilege. Thank you for your time and this opportunity. Kyle, the privilege has all been mine. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. See you next time.